Hey podcast listeners, Mike Rappin, host of the I Read Comic Books podcast here. We are in the final weeks of the listener survey, so bear with us for the next three weeks. If you haven't taken it already, our listener survey is at ircb.us slash survey. Help shape the show with your thoughts on the I Read Comic Books podcast. Take it now at ircb.us slash survey. Now onto the show. This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. With me this week are two amazing people, Paul Jaisley. Hello. And Nick White. Hey, guys. Thank you both for joining me this week. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm glad that we got to talk last week about the chilling adventures of Sabrina, and I, now I'm glad that we're excited to talk about other comic book things this week. So let me ask you the question I ask every single week. How have you been, and how have comic books been? I'm going to throw it to Paul. Um, well, I'm happy to report that I'm fully caught up on my my monthly individual floppy issues. I know last Woo! week all three of us were were Woo-hoo-hoo! far behind, so I was able to force myself to put down this new Twin Peaks book by Mark Frost. I've been reading long enough to actually read some comics. So one thing I noticed though is like I hadn't been to the store in a few weeks, so I had a lot of double issues from DC since they're double shipping. Which I mean, I don't want to blame them, but that's one of the reasons I fall so so far behind. Right. But I noticed that I actually really liked reading the issues back to back. You know, something about seeing I reading two issues, getting two parts of the story. It was actually kind of a nice experience. So might be something I try to do more often, just kind of double up like that. But um, of course, that raises the argument: why don't you just switch to trade? I'm like. No, no thanks. That's a bridge too far. But, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, among the ones that I read this week and I greatly enjoyed were Superman number nine and ten. I know I had mentioned Superman number eight last episode as being a sort of homage to uh, Darwin Cook. Um, it turns out it's actually a two-part story, so it concluded in issue nine. What was really kind of funny is that I felt that the ending of issue eight was kind of uh, purposefully ambiguous. Hmm. Uh, so I think it kind of functions still as a standalone story. Issue nine wraps it up and resolves the conflict, but it also ties it into the Superman title as a whole. So if you ran okay. out and read issue eight as a one shot, like I said it was, and you enjoyed the ending, that's fine. If you're waiting for the conclusion, pick up issue nine and see how it all wraps up. Um, Very cool. Batman numbers 9 and 10 were the first two parts of the I Am Suicide, the new story arc in Batman, and I really, really enjoyed these issues a lot. Um, I'm glad that the Psycho Pirate is still an important part of the Batman series, and that that Tom King is able to sort of pull all these, you know, the the hokey D and C list villains and have them fit into a story that is actually kind of serious and kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a... kind of an intimidating dark sort of story so far so and michael janine's art is really sort of atmospheric it fits the tone really well so batman continues to be a really good book um wonder woman number nine i know i I had been critical of wonder woman the the way they sort of split up the narrative with this new rebirth where you get the origin story one issue and then the current story the next issue and the recent issues of the sort of current story didn't really do much for me, but that changed with issue nine. I really enjoyed this issue. We finally got some forward movement on the plot. We get to see Wonder Woman in a spot where she can no longer go back to Themyscira. She's trying to figure out how to get back to her, her home island. And it's just a really good story. And I think Greg Rucker obviously has a good handle on that character. I will say, though, that the colors are still an issue for me. 
the artwork is really nice. I still like, um, of course, I'm blanking on the name. I should have the issues right at hand here. Is this is this the guy who was doing the alternating story with Scott, or is this someone else? Yes, it's it's Liam Sharp, so it's still the same artist that was doing the earlier issues. Yeah. And for some reason, the, the artwork is really nice. There's some really nice panel-to-panel transition stuff going on in this issue, but the art, the color is so like muddy that it kind of drags the artwork down. Are we going to call him uh, out? It's really who, unfortunate. Who, who did the colors? Uh, should we name names? Uh, let me. Uh, I mean, it, you you it's, it's, you could say it was disappointing. That's okay. Yeah, let me pull it up here. Um, Laura Martin, and I don't know okay. if it's. I mean, it might just be the combination of the artwork and the colors. Maybe their their styles just don't work together. I'm sure yeah, there's sure. other stuff I'm she's go colored that's great. She does a lot of coloring for Valiant, so I can tell okay. you her work is. Uh, usually pretty top-notch. So. Yeah, okay. Something about this just doesn't work for me, but, which is too bad, but I, I'm glad this book kind of turned a corner for me. I'm, I'm, I'm back on board 100% now. So, But the book that I enjoyed the most this week was Cave Carson Has a Cybernetic Eye, number one. This is one <laughs> <What>? of the... <laughs> what is this? <laughs> well, Mike, uh, Cave Carson Has a Cybernetic Eye is a book from DC's Young Animal imprint that Gerard Way is, is sort of uh, in charge of. And it's kind of like an updated uh, early Vertigo kind of series. I mean, this is what Doom Patrol and Shade the Changing Girl and a few others are coming Mother out Panic. as now. Mother Panic that starts, I think, this week. Um but it's basically taking pre-existing weird DC properties, and I love weird DC properties, and mm-hmm. giving them sort of a makeover. I've said that how much I enjoyed the new Doom Patrol by mm-hmm. way. Um, this is a even more obscure DC character who was a sort of this adventurer, Cave Carson, who was, as his name might imply, was a geologist who explored caves and oh, had adventures in, yeah, yeah, in, sure. in the mid-50s. So this is kind of an update on that. That character, which I had no idea existed until now, so it's I bet actually Grant really Morrison f- is so pissed off he didn't take advantage of the opportunity. <laughs> I, you know, Somewhere I did Grant bit of- Morrison is finding this book and fuming. I did do a little bit of research. He does show up in some part, maybe in the background of some panel in Final Crisis. So, a fucking Morrison was sure. <laughs> sure. Of course he does. <laughs> but basically, the the plot for this book is Cave Carson. Um, his wife passed away. And he's sort of distraught, and he's trying to f- figure out what to do with his life, you know. And uh, it's sort of this personal book. It's not this adventuring, high, you know, a- action stuff. It's sort of a personal look at this guy who's trying to figure out what to do with his life and his cybernetic eye, which he doesn't remember how he got. He has an eyeball that's giving him false okay. memories and erasing memories that he had, and he doesn't know how it got there. What's really great about this book, and I should mention that it's, it's written by Jonathan Rivera and Gerard Way. Uh, art by Michael Oming. I can never remember how to say Michael, his name. Is it like Michael Avon Oming? Yeah, maybe? Michael Avon yeah. Oming. Yeah. Fantastic art. It's a very beautiful book. Uh, what's great about it is they sneak in a bunch of the other weird DC properties. Like the Metal Men show up, and then oh, there's, a, there's a last page reveal, which I won't spoil, which I was very excited about. So as someone that loves weird DC stuff, I like that it's not part of the main continuity. It's part of this young animal, and they can just kind of do whatever they want with it. It's really fun. I was actually going to point out, Paul, it actually yeah. is canon. Hmm. Young Animal is canon within DC okay. Rebirth. They said oh, that boy. all. Oh. Which is because um, Mother Panic is going to interact with Batman, apparently. Well, yeah. So. Well, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it may, and maybe if, even if it is continuity, they still have a bit There's more seems creative control. Yeah, some distance there. But the, the, the other thing I have to mention is that not only did I like that story a lot, the last few pages you get a backup by, Leah, there's a backup 
in this issue that is the Superpowers book by Tom Scioli. So you get like two pages of Tom Scioli artwork and awesome. his him doing the DC Superpowers, which is the uh, cartoon and action figure line that DC did in the 80s. That was my introduction to superheroes. It hit home for me pretty hard. It was a lot of fun. Uh, so if you're, if you're missing Transformers versus G.I. Joes, you can get your Scioli fix in Cave Carson Has a Cybernetic Eye. Highly recommended. Damn. Okay. I can just imagine Paul immediately hitting those two pages and just uh, calling up his like local comic book shop, you know, on speed dial, you know, his <laughs> fingers are like blistering with heat as he dials in the number and he's like, I want, you know, all right, pull, pull Cave Carson. Really? Like how much of it? All of it for eternity. It. <laughs> oh, that already happened, Nick. Believe yeah. me. So. <laughs> Nick, what'd you read this week? Well, Mike, I think I've finally figured out to some extent how the things I read every week sort of come together because it's always a weird hodgepodge and in some ways I think it's like a checklist I've got to at least read things from about three different decades from about like four different genres (laughs) and uh, two of which have to be like usually off of uh, or out of some humble bundle that I'm like you know what everyone's always complaining about oh I've got all these humble bundles and I never read any of it and I'm like I'll show those people (laughs) I'll make use of this (laughs) Yeah, so so I, I, I read a weird variety of stuff, starting with uh, Alien vs. Predator number three, uh, colon, War. Um, like the issues of Alien, um, the issues of Alien vs. Predator are not quote-unquote conventional 23-page issues. Um, they're just issues in the sense that Comixology or Dark Horse or whatever has sort of you know, slapped together all of the issues in an arc, and then, you know, they call that a broader issue. But, um, so I read that, which was written by Randy Stradley. Uh, Stradley, interestingly enough, went on to sort of head up the Star Wars division of Dark Horse when Dark Horse had um, Star Wars. Um, and so this is one of his earlier writing credits. And it's an interesting story because it actually does two things that the Alien franchise is not known for, for the most part. Um, one of which is that they're not known for really serializing uh, narratives. And by that, I mean that books one through three of Alien vs. Predator actually follow the same character. Um, and then it does another thing, which is really odd, which is that, and you know, mind you, this was written, I think, in the late 80s, early 90s. It actually interacts with uh, Alien, Aliens issue 16, Frenzy. It actually, Frenzy ended on a cliffhanger, and it gets wrapped up in AVP 3, which was really weird. Um, That's interesting. You might say, well, what's what's the summary of the plot here? Here's the summary of the plot. Uh, if you are a human, uh, you have no business... Uh, having a midlife crisis and deciding that the way you need to fulfill that midlife crisis is by joining a gang of roving predators who are going to planets and killing uh, aliens and other uh, populations for sport. Uh, because eventually you, you you won't you won't fit in and they'll reject you and you'll end up having to fight them as well as the aliens as well as the native population who also want you dead. So don't join predator gangs. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> gotcha. I think I think Sound I advice. think Nancy Reagan <laughs> after don't do drugs it was don't join roving predator gangs. You will regret it. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Fucking makes ton of sense. Jeez. Uh, what else? I read Briggsland three. This book still. Brian Woods doing an amazing job. It's it's a fantastic book, mainly because it's super super scary and super super real in terms of you know all of these sort of militia areas out in out west that are basically setting up their own little commune or whatever. Great book. 
Um, I read Wrath of Eternal Warrior 11 and 12. I really wasn't certain how this book and where this book was going to go after uh, Raul Allen left on art, and they brought on uh, Robert Gill, who, Gill's no stranger to this sort of game. He he drew all of Book of Death for the summer of, I think, 15, mm-hmm. and that worked just fine. Starts off on a really, really jarring premise. Uh, Eternal Warrior goes to Exo Man of War, and he says, Hey, buddy, I need a favor. And Exo Man of War is like, I probably need to be in space destroying something, but I guess I owe you one, um, even though I'm basically <laughs> Iron Man, and no, who cares? <laughs> sure. And, and Eternal Warrior is like, well, I need you to kill me uh, so I can go <laughs> back into that weird limbo place, like somewhere between heaven and hell where my family is waiting for me. And Exo's like, that's kind of like sweet and fucked up at the same time, but I'm not going to do it. And Eternal Warrior's like, well, I'm not going to kill myself because like, I'm worried that in some weird way, then I'm going to actually go to hell. And Exo's like, fine, let me get my space laser sword out and I'll, and I'll kill you. And he does. And that's the beginning of the book. Um, <laughs> really, 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 this book starts with assisted suicide. Um, that's all I need to say. Sure. And uh, what a jarring start. And I really thought it was going to go somewhere weird, but um, I'm optimistic. Uh, the last one I really want to talk about um, is that I did read Bloodshot USA number one. Um, it's kind of a miniseries, kind of not. If you've been reading Bloodshot Reborn, which then turned into um, Bloodshot Island, uh, this is what follows Bloodshot Island. Um, and so you, you can call it a mini if you want, but realistically it's just a continuation of, of Bloodshot Reborn because there aren't any issues of Bloodshot Reborn for the next four months. Mm-hmm. And it's Doug Brathwaite with Jeff Lemire, or Lemire, and Brathwaite's worked with Lemire before. Uh, they did the Bloodshot um, 4001 AD tie-in together. They did the Bloodshot um, Book of Death tie-in together. I think that they only let them work together about once a year because the mind-numbing <laughs> awesomeness of their team-up is a little too much for people to bear. So I'm actually really worried what's going to happen when people have four months in a row of Lemire, Brathwaite, um, collaborations. I think it's going to be uh, hazardous for everyone's health. Uh, but basically what happens is Project Rising Spirit, who are the bad guys who created Bloodshot, basically say, hey, uh, remember in The Valiant, and I know all of our listeners are up to date on The Valiant, and if you aren't, <laughs> you've heard it four times, but I'll repeat it again. <laughs> At the end of The Valiant, the Geomancer, I know, keep keep track of everything here. The Geomancer removes Bloodshot's nanites, which give him all of his powers in a very weird um, you'll thank me later sort of thing. And the nanites just basically start roaming and finding new hosts who then become less powered, lower powered bloodshots of their own and start killing people. And it's a really big problem. Bloodshot has to go on the, you know, on the road. Basically it's the road trip of a lifetime and recover the nanites. He never knew he really missed in the first place. It's basically <laughs> the sequel to Britney Spears crossroads film from like, Oh my one God. Two. Um, if you liked crossroads, um, I know Netflix will recommend it at some point for you, but if you liked Crossroads, I definitely recommend Bloodshot Reborn, uh, Bloodshot USA number one. Anyway, Project Rising Spirit is like, hey, remember when that happened? What if we basically did the exact same thing and just set a whole bunch of nanites loose in a sort of airborne pathogen form in New York City? That sounds like a great idea, right? And then the other board members are like, wait, why would we want to do that? And then the guy's like, well, then we'll just basically turn them off and say, look, you guys need us really bad, put us in a high position of power. Um, And then they basically say that 
with uh, the possibility of, of Trump becoming president that they think that they can like control him to a point where they can get some oh, major Lordy. leverage in the White House. And they, you know, they even mentioned Trump deliberate, uh, you know, <laughs> explicitly. So I got a real nervous chuckle out of that. Um, <laughs> a lot of people are going to be like, is this a good jumping on point? Of course, Valiant will tell you it's a great jumping on point. They want people j- jumping on all over the place. It's like it's like uh, hobos during the Great Depression with railway cars. It's that much jumping on. Great. Good one, Nick. They really fucking nailed that one. <laughs> really, yeah, I really appreciate <laughs> that, fucking Nick. Nailed that out so of the So I have one quick question about this. Do you think that the follow-up series to this will be Bloodshot World? Oh, my God. One? Hmm. Or that would like, so- with the subsequent series, like Bloodshot universe like, i want bloodshot like euro just... trip i want bloodshot euro trip you know <laughs> okay he goes through france and like berlin and an american um, bloodshot goes to london something mm-hmm. like that yeah please please yeah. i mean you know it, it only follows i mean when 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 i think midway was done doing cruising usa they were like we, we need to do cruising world um oh my goodness <laughs> so <Man. laughs> it only follows uh but no it's not a great jumping on point I think I think it's a what it is, and this is how they should be marketing it. Really, it's a fantastic entry point for people who have been reading Bloodshot and maybe sort of dipping their toes into the Valiant universe with Bloodshot, but really haven't found a convenient moment to um, approach the broader Valiant universe. This is a great place for that because obviously it follows Bloodshot and the additional Bloodshots from Bloodshot Island, but it introduces a lot of the broader elements like Unity and Eternal Warrior and Ninjak. Um, it's 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 great for that. Valiant just needs to be marketing it that way instead of, here's a, another fantastic place to get in on Valiant. Gotcha. Not all Valiant jump-on points are, are created equal. Um, right. As we've seen with with some other stories that they've that they've pushed out, absolutely, absolutely. What, what about you, Mike? What have you read? What have you oh, been up to? Uh, you know, I uh, am coming off of a twenty four, almost near twenty four hour bender of playing video games for Extra Life with some friends, John and Xander, who edits the show. Uh, we played Overwatch until dawn, until eight a.m., and then I went to sleep for four hours and woke up, and here I am uh, <laughs> doing the podcast after being up for approximately two and a half hours. So. A um, little, little exhausted today, so if I sound a little out of it, it's because of that, but... Do you want to tell said, our listeners who your preferred Overwatch character is so we can have some people either irrationally love or hate our show purely based sure, upon that? Sure, sure. I am a, a junk rat main with, okay. a, with a backup mercy, you know, so I, I like to deal out the damage and also help my friends. But <laughs> that, I feel like you've got that on a business card. You flip it over and it's in quotes it says, I like to deal out the damage and help out my friends. See, and like quite honestly, it works for both of them. So like that's neither here nor there. I yeah. did read some comics this week. I, okay. I was kind of all over the place and busy, but I managed to sit down and read some books, even though I'm still almost two or three weeks behind. Uh, I read Jughead number 10, which continues the dating storyline between Jughead and Sabrina, which is a whole 180 from what we read with Chilling Sabri- <laughs> Chilling Tales of Sabrina, where mm-hmm. in Jughead, Sabrina is this kind of, she's a very kind young girl who has these very harmless spells that she casts on people, <laughs> and nothing bad happens. Uh, and then at the end of the issue, you know, Jughead and Sabrina realize they can resolve their differences between yada, 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 but... <laughs> It's a very different comic book compared to the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina that we read last week. So that was a that was a pleasant read. Um, I also read Moon Knight number eight, which I 
I say it every time it, it comes up in the show. I can't champion for this book enough. Francis Francovia, or, or Francovia, Stoko, <laughs> and uh, Torres all on this issue were absolutely fantastic. This this culmination of story where all of the, the minds of Mark Spector are finally coming together, and they come together in this issue with hopefully the resolution in issue 9. And boy, is it good. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. The end of this issue was absolutely superb. The writing is so top-notch, and the art matches it in such a beautiful way. I spent nearly an hour just thinking about how you would craft a comic book like this because it's so well-constructed. I was very, very impressed. <laughs> this book is unbelievable, you guys. I can't, if you're not reading this book, you are doing yourself a disservice as a comic book fan. There oh, is good. nothing you really need to know about this book. Other than Mark Spector, kind of crazy, and he's also Moon Knight. It's it's such a fantastic book. Jeff Lemire is doing a fantastic job with this this comic. Um, I also read Death of X number three, the continuation of questions and what the hell is actually happening. Very similar to Bloodshot in a weird way, where there's you know this Terrigen Mist just turning people into superheroes, and now the X Men and then humans need to track them down and figure out what's going on. Except for now the X-Men are just going to straight up kill all the Inhumans. That's that's what's happening in this book right now. <laughs> now, we know what what the resolution of this story is already because we've been reading comic books that have been eight months in the future from this storyline. But what? getting to that point of the bad thing that Coloss... Or, excuse me. Getting to the point where the bad thing that Cyclops did is still up in the air. We don't really know yet. And we're, the conclusion in number four is going to be heartbreaking. I'm certain hmm. of it. I don't think this is really fair for Cyclops. I I don't think it's fair to isolate, you know, bad things he's done to to one thing. Um, <laughs> I think you're sure. really giving him sure. the benefit of a doubt here. Well, um, sorry, the bad thing that made everybody absolutely hate him in the comic and out of the comic. Well, we don't really know if people hate him out of the comic, I guess, but in the comic, everyone really hates him, and that's been hmm. kind of a that's a new thing for X-Men, because people have always hated Cyclops. But in the comics, they've never really hated him so much that they're just like, oh, he's a stubborn jerk, but I guess we'll follow him because mm-hmm. he's our leader. Because he's got a laser for a face. Yeah, something like that. But it's a very interesting story that they're going with here. You said that we know where things sort of stand eight months in the future. Like, what's the state of mutants and inhumans eight months well, in the future? No. Yeah. Well, the state of humans... Excuse me, the state of mutants right now is they have moved their um, school into limbo, into an alternate dimension because they have been so... School of choice. Yeah, well, they've been been hunted by either the government or the Inhumans or something happened where they don't feel safe on planet Earth anymore. So they now live in limbo in this special little secluded area that magic created because magic has powers over limbo. It's a whole different backstory thing. But oh boy. everyone, all of the mutants are like, well, we can't believe that that thing that Cyclops did. So young Cyclops <laughs> from the past is very, very confused when everyone hates him. And then he realizes, oh, a bad thing happened that the guy, this guy and I share a face. And we don't, we haven't, we haven't been able to figure out what that thing is. That's that was the opening to Jeff Lemire's Extraordinary X Men. That was the mm-hmm. opening to Uncanny X Men and all oh. new X Men. This is all. This has been kind of the like focus or the thing that they all have in common. They all reference, but no one actually explains. So now we're we're seeing this play out, and it's been pretty bad so far. It's been a lot of arrested development level miscommunication, but mm-hmm. in a super dramatic, serious tone. So it's it's been quite interesting. I guess what I'm saying is that, like, 
if the book in the past has, in theory, the X-Men and the Inhumans fighting each other, and we know that eight months down the line the X-Men are still alive in some pocket dimension of sorts, clearly the Inhumans didn't really do the job then, uh, did they? Well, but it's not about eradicating them. It's, it's about a differing sense of ideals where the Inhumans and... I should say that the I know about a X-Men realize that's Xavier and Magneto like that's been X-Men <laughs> right. forever yeah. and ever. But, so there, there's this there's this this understood thing that the Terrigen mists that have been traveling all over the globe as a result of something that happened during Infinity War way back before Secret War essentially there's this cloud of dust that if anyone inhales it, if you happen to have they be, these they powers, latent yeah. genes in your in your body, you get powers. Right. And it turns out that that same dust or mist, whatever you want to call it, kills some, if not all, of mu- all the mutants. Like if a mutant inhales this, they get really, really sick and they die really, really quickly. So oh. the X-Men are very not very happy about that because the Inhumans are just pushing this cloud all over the globe saying, yeah, let's do this. But there are mutants all over the globe and they're dying. So they're trying to protect their people. And so it's a it's a it's just a it's a battle of misunderstanding and the mutants being pretty upset about this in the first place. Like Storm, for instance, is leading the X-Men and she wants to peacefully resolve this issue, whereas Cyclops is unwilling to do so and he thinks that this is an attack on him and his people. Because ever since AVX, he's been kind of a hard ass, um, more so than usual. So it's it's everything coming together, and now I think at the end, either Cyclops is going to die, or he's going to be captured, or something. The cover for Death of X number four is Cyclops versus Black Bolt, so Ooh. that's going to be exciting. The final book I really want to mention, though, that I read this week was Poe Dameron number seven. This book is a lot of fun. That's that's all I want to say <laughs> about it. If you're if you're looking for a fun, happy-go-lucky Star Wars book that isn't Han Solo, <laughs> you should read Poe Dameron because it's ongoing okay. and it's pretty good. Hmm. So. Comic books come out on November 9th, 2016. What are you guys excited for this week? I'm going to kick it to you, Nick, since I know I realized I cut you off like four times, but let's talk about what you're excited for this week. <laughs> um, that's okay. I mean, I, I do I do want to just point out there that I will be starting my... Um, what, what, what is that new thing you can do where you get like uh, enough votes or you know get people to sign your little petition or whatever on the change yeah so I am going to be starting a change.org petition to get Cyclops's name changed to Laserface um, sure sure I hope all sure, of sure. you sign it I think <laughs> I think there's a real opportunity here um, honestly I will be uh, starting a petition to get your name changed to Laserface as well <laughs> sweet good so, so I'll, I'll sign that jeez um, so my pick of the week is Wrath of the Eternal Warrior, number 13. I talked about 11 and 12 briefly already, um, and that's sort of the reason that I'm actually excited for 13. After the Raul Allen um, arc, which I guess really wasn't totally Raul Allen, there were two issues of, jeez, um, oh, what is his name? Juan Jose Reap on Wrath of the Eternal mm-hmm. Warrior. Um, which which was very uncharacteristic of Valiant to have Raul Allen on that book for so long. Normally, after about four issues or when the arc wraps, they rotate artists. So we were kind of spoiled, and I was really worried that with Gil coming on, that the book was going to fundamentally change. And like I said, the the first issue of Gil was was like really really weird. You know, um, it has Exo Man of War effectively kill him, and he ends up back in limbo. 
And I'm thinking to myself, well, geez, like, here we go again. I'm stuck in limbo. I got to make my way out and more or less go through these different, basically different layers or levels of hell and to get back to humanity. And I was sort of wondering if this book was just gonna, really going to go rinse, repeat for this arc. Um, but in issue 12, it really turned things around and pointed out that one of his uh, sons... Um, actually attempted to follow him back into the real world um, and was captured by one of these, well, basically one of these demons that has domain over one of the areas of hell. Sure. Uh, and it's it's kind of funny because Eternal Warrior goes to the one guy who usually is sort of the last effort to keep him from joining back into our world and... Um, and the guy basically, you know, puts him on the rack and is getting ready to torture him. And he's like, you know what? It really pains me. You don't even understand how much it pains me to say this, but we have rules in hell and I can't torture you because like, um, I'm, I'm not actually the one who took your son and, uh, I actually need you to help me take out this other, um, this other, you know, archdemon or whatever who runs this other area because he's basically, uh, he's not following the rules. So more so or less, did Eternal it, Warrior just get drafted for a contract job in Hell? Is that basically? What you're saying yeah, to yeah, me? yeah, yeah. He's like, you know, he's like, I need you to go kill this other guy, and he also has your son. So you deal with him. You get your son. Uh, you're definitely not a pawn in a bigger game. <laughs> definitely not. Of <laughs> Just course. sign this in blood, preferably. Uh, and so he goes after this guy. I forget his name, but he runs like this sort you of... You don't a, have to spoil the whole issue, man. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, I, mean I, I don't know much more. We don't, we, we don't know much more beyond it at that point, but it basically turns the book around and sends him off, and now he's in a different area of hell, which is kind of exciting, kind of different. Uh, and it basically pits Eternal Warrior against this guy who has a massive 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 army uh so it should be interesting um i think i sent you the picture of the page where it's like the last it's like the last panel and he's like give me back my son and he yeah. shoots this guy right in the head and like the cranium blows up all over the place and everyone's like okay at least we know the tone that this book is going to be setting for the future so right um yeah uh it, it turned the corner i'm i'm excited uh it's a real change for for this book but um wrath of the eternal warrior 13 still moving still going new artist my only question is where where's raul allen now i i don't know what book he's on i don't know where he's going um but he needs to be on something honestly feels like you're gonna put his face on milk cartons or something yeah Nick. yeah it'll be where's okay. raul allen <laughs> please tell me someone's giving him work uh please cool Paul, what are you excited for this week? I, I the title of this book is is blowing my mind. <laughs> well, it's it's kind of funny. I was going through the list of what's coming out this week that my my local comic book shop sends out every week. Going through the email, and I was there's a lot of stuff that jumped out at me, and I was like, oh, any of these could be my pick. And there at the bottom of the list, alphabetically, was WWE then now forever number one. And I said, that's got to be it. That's got to be my pick. So <laughs> <laughs> this is a one shot from Boom. Um, it's a one shot as kind of like an intro into an ongoing series. I don't know when the ongoing is going to start, but this is a one shot. It's oversized um, and it's about wrestling. It's about WWE. And it's kind of <laughs> interesting because um, there are plenty. There have been attempts to do licensed wrestling comics before, and they're usually pretty terrible. Um there's something about professional wrestling that's hard to translate that I think the issue is like what 
do we tell a story that is kayfabe, you know, the fiction of the actual wrestling show? Do we follow that or do our own story? A lot of times the drawing, the the artwork doesn't match the the characters, like it's off model. And so much of wrestling is about the physical appearance of the the characters and the wrestlers that right. it is off model is kind of weird. Um, but this feels like it's actually a book that's been pretty well done. It's written by Dennis Hopeless uh, with art by Dan Mora. And they're doing the sort of the main story in this issue. And what's interesting is that they're doing an actual storyline from WWE. It's actually a story that took place on television like two years ago. It was the breakup of The Shield. Which oh, is weird. This, this faction that was like running roughshod over the rest of the, the company. It was a great story. They were great wrestlers. And they had this one of the members of The Shield turned on the other two. And it was like one of the huge shocking moments of the past two years in WWE. They're going to retell some of the background of why that happened, which is kind of interesting because if you are a wrestling fan, you kind of want to know that background. So it's kind of an investment. It's not like I'm going to hear reading a new, brand new story with these characters. It's something I'm already familiar with. I'm getting kind of the background behind it in comic book form. On top of that... Yeah, that's really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, I thought... I think that solves some of the issues that you have with doing a licensed book about this stuff. It's like, it's not just seeing these characters, you know, in their day-to-day life. It's like, no, here's a story I actually know and I can get a different take on it. So it flushes out in a way. Very cool. Uh, on top of that, Dan Moore's artwork is really good. He does a really good job of capturing the likenesses of a lot of these characters. I'm looking at some of the preview pages that they released, and the, I can tell who the characters are. They look on model. It's kind of stylized, and there's actually some cool wrestling action that's well done. It's hard to show that's the sort of a movement, the kinetic energy of the wrestling match in the static comic books art yeah. form, but it seems like Dan Moore does a pretty good job on these preview pages. This so sounds on top like of, this would be a really tough book to draw, like in terms of different <laughs> yeah, topics that yes, I would not yes. want. I would not want the one where it's like, okay, so here's a bunch of characters and they all have like real life counterparts who you're mm-hmm. going to have to match their likeness to some extent. And also you're going to need to do a lot of action stuff, yeah. you know, with like body proportions and, and, and kinetic energy. Yeah, This sounds like yeah. a tough job. So I mean, hats, <laughs> hat off to him. That, yeah, I mean, kudos to him because whew. I like... Like I said, these preview pages are, look lovely. And then on top of that story, we get some backup stories uh, run by one by Ross Thibodeau with artwork by Rob Gilroy um, of Chew fame. They're doing a story about the New Day, uh, which is another faction. And then we're getting a, a couple of their backups, one about uh, Sasha Banks, who's one of my favorite wrestlers, and Tugboat. If anyone remembers Tugboat from the uh, <laughs> late 80s, early 90s, he gets a story here. So this nice. looks like it's going to be a lot of fun. Um <laughs> Normally, I don't expect much from uh, comic books about wrestling, uh, but I think this one, um, if WWE is for better or for worse, over the top and hokey, and I think if they can capture that, if there's a little wink to the audience here, that'll like make it work better. And I feel like that's kind of what they're doing here. So I have high hopes for this. Um, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's, it looks pretty cool. So WWE, then now forever, number one. It is a one shot. Um, because it's boom, there's a ton of different variant covers. And if anybody gets the variant cover of The Undertaker done by Fraser Irving, let me know. I'll probably, uh, I might trade you for it. So um, check it out. Hey, I man, don't know. Let me know what that book yeah. looks like. I will uh, <laughs> I will look for it at Midtown for you. That that would be, be awesome, Mike. So uh, yeah, I don't know if this would be good for non-wrestling fans, but uh, I'm excited for it anyway. 
Cool, man. Well, it sounds like they re- they're really directly directing this at the wrestling community specifically, yes. which I think is yes, good. Yes. It's good to see a book that's not... It's not to say there's no place for it in comics, obviously, but it's no. good to see a book that's not sort of compromising, you know, and saying, like, everything needs to be accessible all the time. Um, yeah. Wrestling fans love, you know, it will probably eat this up if it's properly presented to them. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely excited for it. So, and <laughs> yeah. I, I, yeah, there you go. Cool. Well, for me this week, I'm excited for what I think is the last issue of the Paybacks. It's the Paybacks number four from Heavy Metal by Donny Cates and Jeff Shaw. Uh, this is a weird book. It, it moved from Dark Horse over to Heavy Metal. Uh, it ended at Dark Horse on number four in the middle of the story. There wasn't even like a conclusion. They simply just ended the story. Uh, and Donny Cates said that the book was canceled and they moved over to, he- to Heavy Metal. And in Heavy Metal, they picked up the story at number one, right from where the previous number four left off. So I think this is the last issue. The, the story has been building up to an epic conclusion of things. I just, I feel like I need to reread everything. And I, I know I say that a lot on the show, but I, I think that there is, there's like a, there was a large loss of of information from the time that it came out at dark horse to when it came out at heavy metal and i know that it wasn't that long i think it was maybe three or six months but i i feel like there's this huge disconnect even though the story is straightforward so i might have to reread everything before i get to the end of this um i i'm really sad to hear that this is ending because i love the concept of this book uh for the paybacks the the story is you know you is want to become a superhero so you take out a loan from this guy and if you don't pay back your you know the, your loan then he come he sends his goons to come get you and his goons are other superheroes who have reneged on their loans and so they all have superpowers so it's superheroes versus superheroes now what makes this story interesting on top of that is that in the end or maybe the beginning of this newest run starting number one at, at heavy metal. It was the the biggest superhero in the world had his alternate identity um, or alter ego exposed, and he was not very happy about that. So he has come to kill this guy who is given out all these loans, but he has to go through all these other superhero folks. So that's kind of what's been happening. The big conclusion is coming up, and there's a couple other twists and turns that I won't spoil. But The Paybacks has been a very interesting book, and I really love this universe that Donny Cates and Jeff Shaw have built together. Uh, Jeff Shaw's art is very precise and 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 edgy, like and not not in like a not in like a in like a cultural way, but it's everything is very sharp and it really works well for this book. All the action is full of power and energy, and it makes for a very unique story. And I I really have to credit Donny Cates for coming up with this and his other book. Um, Oh, whose name escapes me about the guy who whatever drug he takes gets a different oh, power. Buzzkill. <laughs> Buzzkill, that's what it is. Oh, right. uh, these Those two books kind of tie together in the same universe, and I, I really want more of this universe. So the payback's number four. Loving this book. Sad to see it end. But, you know, things these things happen, I guess. Maybe there will be more. Maybe this is just another miniseries in this greater universe, which is what I'm crossing my fingers and hoping for. I'm sure people that are looking for another narrative that's an effective allegory to predatory student loans will will find something out there. (laughs) There's always something. (laughs) For our episode this week, I wanted to talk about something that we mention every once in a while, and I know we had another specific episode about this in 
one light, but I actually want to talk to Nick and Paul today about classic comic books and what makes a classic comic book and are there any books that we're reading now or have read in the past couple years that are eventually going to be considered classic books, the type of books that you recommend to someone or the type of books that say this changed comics in some way in a positive light. And I know that we you can point at a lot of comic books and you can say this this comic book changed comics in some light, but at the same time, would you grab that book and give it to someone and say, you have to read this to understand, you know, the modern medium of comic books. So I want to throw it back to you two guys without adding any more commentary. Like, what do you think about this? What do you think makes a classic comic book? Well, I think there's a couple of different ways we can talk about this. And I, I think in the past, we've talked about the idea of there being a comic book canon. I think we've all sort of rejected the idea that there is a fixed group of books that must be read to understand comics. I think what we're talking about today is a little bit different in this idea that like what makes a book classic and important. And I think there's a couple different ways to uh, quantify that or clarify that. You could say a book is important because of its historical significance, right? Um, Action Comics number one is a classic comic because it's the first appearance of Superman. Right. Is it a particularly good comic? That's up for debate, but it's important and it's classic in that sense. I think there's also books that have pushed the boundaries or possibilities of the medium. Um, for all of its flaws and faults, Watchmen is kind of that book where it's like it's a book that's invested in being a comic book and it's presented in a very specific way because of that. And mm -hmm. it impacted how people thought about superheroes and comic books ever since. And then I think we can also talk about classic comics are books that um, found an audience outside of the typical comic book reader or comic book fan, something that got a lot of outside mainstream attention. And I think maybe a more recent example of that would be a book like Saga, which everyone apparently was reading, right? Yeah, so, or at least someone was talking about in some capacity because there was some gratuitous thing on the cover that made them upset. Made, exactly, yeah. So <laughs> and when we talk about classic, I think we, books can have one of those things or all three of those things or different mix. And for me, that's the best way to talk about it. It's like a classic book is a book that isn't... Uh, Maybe, I, again, I don't want to say it's a canonical text that needs to be read to understood, but it's a book that has a significant value to the medium and the history of comic books as an art form. Totally. And, and, you know, I think you mentioned something like, you know, a book that got notoriety. And Saga is one of recent note. I think Mouse is another big one. They're probably oh, yeah, yeah, bigger yeah. than, than mm -hmm. Watchmen. That actually Definitely. is important. I mean, I read Mouse in, in high school. Like, that was part yeah. of our curriculum because it's such an important book. And that was... As far as I'm concerned, that is a straightforward comic book. You know, that, that blows my mind that a comic book was part of my curriculum. And I think that's like the shifting of how people perceive comic books, which is something I know we've talked about many, many, many times before as comic books as a, as a form of art, not necessarily so much as a form of entertainment or it's not necessarily for kids or something like that. But right. Mouse, I think, is one of those classic books, um, even though it was published a while ago. Um, Nick, I don't know. what are, what are your What's your take on this? Well, I think I think Paul really hit the nail on the head, or I guess I should say he hit all of the nails on each of their <laughs> respective heads in quick succession, leaving very few for me to hammer. So, um, <laughs> okay, well, I, I will the house has already that. been built, <laughs> yeah. and uh, I guess I'm only here to inspect it. Uh, no, um, I, Paul's completely right. I think really what it boils down to, and I know Kirby hit on this a lot. Um, in that video we watched where he talked about I just want to push the the medium further um, and you can push the medium further in, in all sorts of ways you can experiment with narrative technique you can experiment with uh, different uh, art forms or collaborative forms 
or um, new genres or, or mixing genres or reaching new audiences. Uh, ultimately, you know, a classic book is really, you know, as I wrote here, I think it's a title that for a wide variety of reasons continues to be read, discussed, and analyzed for its contributions to the medium. Uh, and that can be for a good variety of reasons. I think what's interesting to me and what sort of I dealt with when I was attempting to not only compile a list of what I thought were quote unquote definitive classics, but also what I thought I would what I thought would become a future classic is the idea that classic quote unquote is not um, necessarily go hand in hand with good. You know, true, true. Um, <laughs> there definitely, I mean, there is something to be said for personal preference. I know a lot of people that don't like Killing Joke. I know a lot of people that don't like Watchmen. Um, I know, you know, some people that aren't that big on Sandman. And so, classic does not necessarily, you know, mean it's good. It doesn't mean you're going to love it. It doesn't mean. I'm sure there are some classics out there that aren't universally loved. Certainly Killing Joke is not really feeling the love these days. Um, so I, I think that's something that has to be considered as well uh, when you're looking at, at classic books and how we define them and, and how we look at the um, future um, or, or future classics, I guess you could say. Sure. And so along those lines, um, would you say, like, can we, can we think of a few that, like, off, off the top of our heads, I mean in our notes that we've already written before the show started uh, about <laughs> yeah. these books that, that like they become the type of comics where you sit down and you hold it and you go, this is the type of book that I want pe- future comic book readers to read in order to understand like what made our era of comics great. And maybe that's what defines like a classic. You find a, a, a piece of work that defines a specific time th- th- in comic books or I mean, and this works in literary too or in literature as well, I think. Sure, you know, talking about eras and what pieces defined that era. Sure, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, and that's I, I, I'm trying to say that without also implying that there is a cultural like piece of it because I think <laughs> a lot of these books, like Saga or Hawkeye, or you know, we're looking at even like All Star Superman, Ghost World, these types of books, they aren't 100% rooted in the time that they were created, right? Like, they aren't necessarily sure. forced to say, to be compliant with the year in which they were published. Now, <laughs> right. outside of but the, I think the they small also pieces of on technology of, and things like that, yeah. but, uh, yeah. sorry, go ahead, Nick. Yeah, I mean, you're completely right. I mean, if, if, if you pick up um, Long Halloween or you pick up, um, you know, Bone or, or, or perhaps, like, Preacher, uh, <laughs> some of these books you can't look at and say they're culturally rooted in in like you know you can pinpoint them chronologically or something like that but they are sort of culturally rooted in terms of um what like you said technologically speaking what the medium would allow for Mm -hmm. um creatively speaking what like censorship and 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 publishers were you know allowing for at that time um and and also just generally speaking where like what sort of mind space creator creators were in at that point. So in some ways, yeah, I mean, there are trappings of certain things. Like if you look at the onset of Vertigo and you look at Hellblazer and Sandman, and I think they call it like the, the British invasion of comics, you know, mm-hmm. there are, there are, there are pieces from that area era that you can chronologically date. Um, and that reflect upon that era, I guess. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure, and I mean that's that's of course going to be 
an issue, an issue in any type of medium that's, that takes mm-hmm. place in our time, right? Sure. You, you look at a book like, you know, um, To Kill a Mockingbird. You look at a book you know, like uh, Huckleberry Finn or something like that. And these are obviously placed at a certain time, and yet they are stories that we continue to read because of, <laughs> like, the greater message in the story. Like, they aren't so right. focused on the they cultural aspects. Exactly. The historical element. And so yeah. when we're looking mm-hmm. at these comic books that are so important, you know, like, I, Nick, you listed Transmetropolitan, which I think is a, is a fantastic pick, or Why the Last Man as well. These books exist in their own time, yes. And, I mean, Transmet takes place in a weird alternate future, but is also rooted right. very much in the early late to late nineties, early two thousands, in terms yes. of like what was happening politically. But that's what drove the story, and that's what drove the story of why the last man is this this mindset that created a story that transcends the time in which it was published, and that's what makes these books so important. As we're looking more at the types of books that are coming out now, maybe in the last four, five, or six years, like what kind of how how do we take these books, and what do we think is actually going to make them that important, or make them as important as these other books? Which is what I was trying. <laughs> to get at here today if if anything i mean i'm not trying to, not trying to force you guys to start naming names or anything right. but i mean i would like to try to point some some books out that we think um may may hit that category yeah. before you know before the end of the episode at least <laughs> well if i could suggest one right off the bat which i think is important because of the way it's made i think it captures a shift in the comic books um uh, business a, a, as an entertainment business and a, as a as an entity, I think is Demon by Jason Shiga, which is a pretty recent book. It actually just finished, so it's not being currently published. But this is a book that was being self I'm uh, crowdsourced by Jason Shiga. So the idea that's a book that not only captured the sort of current marketplace of being crowdsourced, but was self-published in that sense, and then was picked up and is being republished by First Second Press, I think, next year. And it's a really great book, and I think it's a fantastic comic book on its own, but I like the fact that it I think it's going to stand as a book that made an impact because of the way it was produced. It was produced using crowdsourcing, which hasn't always paid off, but in this case, it nailed, it worked, and this book got published, and it got picked up as being republished for a larger audience. So I think it's significant and could be considered classic because of the way it was made more than anything else, even though it's very good. When did that book actually start getting published? Do you know off the top of your head? Um, I think I mean it just wrapped up I think over the summer and it took a long time it, I mean it's a long long book so I got to say it's maybe like two years okay. overall okay so yeah. so right as this this whole Kickstarter crowdfunding thing started to boom this book managed yeah. to hop on the bandwagon and actually see itself through the end which is pretty impressive and I don't think a lot of books can actually say that that they were crowdsourced unless they were like an original graphic novel or something like that right um, yeah. but any kind of like long form book like that over two years that's that's pretty impressive yeah i think the final i think he he wanted it to hit 500 pages and it just it goes just over that so it's, i mean it's a lot of comics Absolutely. to make yourself and publish so yeah i think and on top of that it is a fantastic comic book that i think everyone should at least check out but i think capturing that zeitgeist of being crowdsourced is kind of important totally totally now, Nick, now it's your turn. Now, now I need you to name one, and then I'm going <laughs> to sure, name one. And then we'll sure. go back into actually talking about this idea. But we'll sprinkle these out throughout the rest of this episode. <laughs> I was hoping we were going to actually turn this into like a listicle. And after you get two picks, you have to listen to two ads before, you know, <laughs> yeah, listening yeah. to the next two picks. And we don't have that option in, uh, in the upper right-hand corner where it's like view all items as a list instead of a gallery. Uh, yeah. 
for those of you who spend too much time on the internet, you're like, yeah, I get that. And for the rest of you, you're like, <laughs> you spend too much time on the internet. Um, for me, I'm going to go a little more mainstream, a little more, probably quite a bit more, and say <laughs> that I think Jeff Lemire's run on Animal Man uh, will be viewed as a classic down somewhere down the line. Um, I think it's got something working against it, and that is obviously the fact that here is someone who is attempting to do a character after Grant Morrison attempted to reinvent the character, which, <laughs> yeah. you know, he sort of has done that with everybody, so you, mm-hmm. I mean, you're having to follow Grant, and of course Grant's going to break down the fourth wall, and he's going to get into metaphysics, and he's going to make you convinced that at the end of it that you've been, you know, abducted by aliens, and all this other well, shit. With, an- but I with think- Animal Man, his Animal Man was literally, literally breaking the fourth wall. The character oh, came out and talked to the man. He, yeah. the, in the yeah. fucking pages of the comic, like, if you haven't read Grant Morrison's run on Animal Man, you should stop <laughs> what you're doing and do that. It's a book that actually really yeah, breaks I mean, your mind. It's 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 a tough read because it's kind of all over the place and it's very 80s. But at the same yeah. time, it, yeah. the, the last four issues are are some of the most compelling mind-bending comics you could ever read. That I'll just I'll just say that before you continue Nick. Sorry. I had I just want to make sure it's said. I was hoping we 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 could go to bat for the the book that I was talking about and, and not Grants, but I'm <laughs> yeah, sure yeah. let's Grant Grant clearly, clearly needs the help these days. So yeah, well, just kidding. See, but with with Lemire's Animal Man, I think it was it was taking I, I, I disagree with your, your thought that it may be a classic mm-hmm. book. So I don't know. I don't know how well, to defend here, here's, it. Here's, here's why, for, for two reasons. One, I think it does represent this transition of popular indie comic book people beginning to dabble and really find success in, in, the, in the big two um, around this, you know, 05, uh, like 2010, 2011 era. Um, where people like like Matt Kint and uh, and Jeff Lemire are starting to find success, and so I think I think in that vein, it's 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 a significant thing. Um, I think it's also significant because it does represent the era of the the New Fifty Two for DC, and I think um, a lot of people are very dismissive of it, but I think there are some good things that came out of it, and I think that Lemire's run really is interesting because it defies practically all of the editorial mandates of of what the new 52 was supposed to be about canon about titles that interact with each other extensively about having everything line up about you know favoring justice league characters over obscure characters and here's this book about a guy who he has a family his mother-in-law is in like half of the issues you know he's got a semi-normal job um, he's got all these weird, goofy powers, and yet it's a horror comic with a very non-traditional comic book artist on it. And 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 I think that it just stands out as you know the good side or the or the the, the potential that the New Fifty Two had um, to some extent, and and the idea that readers in some ways would actually or did actually support that to you know to some end. Sure, sure. I mean, I can, I can see that. I mean, if if we're if we're going off of like that is the book that represents the era, like maybe. Um, but I don't, I don't know if any of the like New Fifty Two books, like stories, actually would like stand out so much to the point where you could say like you would hand that to a regular, you would hand mm-hmm. that to someone and say like mm-hmm. this is, 
this is so compelling as a story that like it it did more for the medium than just telling a great story and i i think and, like yeah. that's that might be the, where i'm drawing a line in my head and i can i i don't know i can probably name a few books that i think are doing that but so i'll let you continue nick sure well and this is sort of what we talked about before the show in the sense that I think there is, deservedly or not, there's some sort of bias when we talk about classics where um, standalone uh, miniseries, original graphic novels, these are the tens, these are the sorts of things that tend to be on these lists. And you're right. Uh, a lot of times when you want to talk about classics that other people should read, most of the time you don't preface that by saying, here's a classic you need to read, but before you read it, you're also going to need to read these other things. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Items yeah. that belong on a list of classics don't come with baggage. I think that's an interesting point, Nick, and I, I, it's one that I could, I have, I'm of two minds on, because I can see that point, but on the other hand, it's those classic single issues of long runs are remembered because of moments rather than the issues themselves. And maybe that's a weird distinction to make. It's like a classic moment in my mind is like Amazing Spider-Man number 33 by Stan Lee and Steve Ditko, arguably the greatest comic book, single comic that Marvel ever published. And it's remembered because of the first opening pages where Spider-Man is trapped under the big heavy machinery and the room's filling with water and he's trying to will the strength to lift up the machinery and he's like I gotta do it for Uncle Ben I gotta do it for Aunt May and it's a perfect Spider-Man moment the rest of the issue doesn't live up to it though but I think that's a classic moment rather than maybe a classic you know issue if that makes sense right so I think no, I think totally. yeah so I think when you're talking about serialized narratives or episodic narratives and like long runs it's remember moments on the other hand the trade the emergence of the trade market in the past 20 years has really changed that because a story like Batman Year One was published in the ongoing Batman title. It, right. it actually was part of the monthly Batman book. And no one reads it that way. Evan reads it as the collected edition, so it stands alone, right. Right. even though it was a part of the ongoing series. So, What percentage of Watchmen readers actually read it in serialized Yeah, exactly, format? when it was coming sure. out. Yeah. Point sure. zero 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 eight, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. But we've got, you know, we have a couple of other books, and we mentioned a few already. I think V for Vendetta is something we haven't brought up, and that's like another miniseries standalone. Ghost World is another miniseries standalone. Mouse, Persep Persepolis, I think that's what that book is. Like, and I'm just going over your mm -hmm. list, Nick, so I'm sorry for stealing oh, sure. all of your books. But, you know, these are all miniseries, and we go, wow, these are these are really strong powerful books that we would you know we would put on a classic shelf and say like these are the books that that made mm -hmm. comic books for a certain amount of time um and if we're looking at like modern if we're looking at modern comic books i think we've all kind of pointed at saga in one way or another and mm -hmm. in my mind i'm actually asking the question is saga going to be considered something that's actually groundbreaking is it a book that like changed the medium on the whole because Brian K. Vaughn, while an incredibly capable writer, and he did write Why the Last Man, which I think is probably one of the most recommended books you'll find out there from the last 20 years. Sure. I don't know if Saga mm -hmm. is at that same level of changing the game to the point where people had to stop and think about their comic book before they picked it up. You know, Saga mm. to me is this giant sure. space opera, but that's just... It's just one in a hundred that are out there of this big space world where everything's bad and people are, you know, defining stere defying stereotypes and things like that. And maybe that's because it's become the norm in the last maybe eight or nine years in comics where you're trying to twist cliches and twist, you know, tropes on their head to make interesting books. But 
I, I don't know. I, I'm worried that Saga, like, it gets a lot of praise, and I really love the book, and I still read it, but I don't know if it's at the same way, at the same level as something like Why the Last Man. And I don't want to say sure. Brian K. Vaughn has peaked, because Saga is a great comic book, but I don't think it's, like, a <laughs> classic comic book in the same, like, vein. No, I, th- I think that's a really good point, Mike. As someone that dropped off of Saga months and months ago, um, I, I, I have a hard time maybe saying that, explaining why it's important, but... It, that the impact it had when it first came out was pretty undeniable. I mean, everyone was reading it. Everyone was praising it. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's going to last. I'm sure there were books that were incredibly popular when they came out that no one remembers now. So yeah, I just I, I think it, that's what's tough is like when you're in the moment, it's hard to really separate the hype from what makes the book important. Right. right? Yeah. There's there's so. a reason that we we probably aren't today going to be able to adequately predict. What no. books become classics? We gotta and it's because one. it's so. We difficult. gotta pick one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I, I think you're right. There's something about the just insane broad appeal of Saga that, if anything else, stands out for that reason. And sort of being a book that showed up right at this point where a broader audience was getting more interested in comics again, and um, there was a, a huge trade audience for that book. There's a huge digital audience for that book, and so. This mainstream interest coupled with technological progressions made Saga such a powerhouse. Yeah. And I think that can't be ignored, but I, I brought up the book with Jordan last night and I said, what do you think about that being a classic? And I think he used maybe one or two swear words and maybe didn't <laughs> string the thought together as cleanly as I'm going to put it, uh, posit it to you here. But he basically said the book wore out its welcome. Uh, sure. And that it just went on for too long. And whether it's fair or not, there is something to be said about the idea that books that end up on a list of like classics or whatever usually don't go on forever. You know what I mean? Yeah. They don't just go on. I mean, Why the Last Man was what? Maybe 60 issues? Yeah. yeah. Something mm-hmm. like that. I think Saga is what? Somewhere around the exact same point? No, it, at they're at point? about 40. I think they're at 38 just yeah. came out. So and, okay. and I wouldn't be surprised if this book ended at 60. I think Brian K. Vaughn has like that as an understanding. And quite honestly, if we're talking about good, solid runs of comics, we're looking at books like Chew, we're looking at books like Transmetropolitan, they usually run for about 50 or 60 issues, then kind of call it quits. Not out <laughs> of exhaustion, but out of that finality of every that I think everyone kind of agrees on, that books that run too long tend to be tiring. And you look at something like Walking Dead or you look at like Invincible, any of the mainstream, you know, big two books that have been going on for so long and trying to keep up their continuity, you do get tired of them. And I think ending a book at 60 or 72 or whatever number it may be that's less than 100 adds a nice bookend to the series saying, here is an entire story that's long form, but has a complete mm-hmm. ending. And and you don't, I, I think we don't get that as often as we want with long running books. Um, which makes these types I, of runs yeah. very important. I think and I've I think got two. I've yeah. got, oh, sorry. Go ahead. I've got Go ahead, Paul. Two points I want to make on that. I, I maybe posit as an open-ended question: Would The Walking Dead be considered a classic if it had ended after uh, at a hundred issues? Let's say just an arbitrary number. If it had ended at some point, yeah. Do you think it had a better That's chance? Exactly of being a where I was board? going. No. And then my so <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> I'll just say my, that right now. Sure. My my second point as to throw a spanner in the works, so to speak, is that Love and Rockets is a classic comic book that's never ended. So there's like the one example of a book that's like, but so 
it's a classic because of its importance and its significance to independent publishing. Yes. Mm-hmm. And well, I think what you're seeing with those books is the the two sides of the coin of um, the positive of oh well this book can go on forever and the negative yeah. of oh this book in the in the case of the walking dead this book is basically printing money left and right it it has to go on forever <laughs> yeah. it has to go um, on yeah yeah i mean i think what love and rockets is important for a number of reasons it's self published is the the beginning of that sort of market you know in the early 80s of saying look we can do this on our own uh, it's unique i remember i was reading the first sort of trade the collection maggie the mechanic with some friends who had never read it before and they were all just like stunned that a book coming out in the early 80s was about a bisexual you know mexican-american teenager going to punk shows the fact that book exists at all is kind of amazing also going to the jungle (laughs) and fixing space rockets but like that's only part of the story (laughs) that's only part of it (laughs) i do want to say that i think yeah again that's a book that there's so much of it it's hard to pick it's hard to say the whole thing's classic, but mm-hmm. the Love Bunglers, which was the, the mo- one of the more recent stories that Jaime Hernandez did, I want to say it was 2011, 2012. That story, the Love Bunglers, is arguably his best s- story, and it doesn't quite stand alone, obviously, because it's these characters that he's been he's been working with for thirty years, but. That's the one I would say to fans: like, if you don't want to start at the beginning and deal with all that, go. Buy that collection, The Love Bunglers, and it's an enjoyable emotional story all on its own. I think that might be, in my mind, the classic Love and Rockets story when it's all said and done. Gotcha. Anyway, anyway, Mike, you was, you have uh, thought about The Walking Dead. I mean, my my thoughts about The Walking Dead are are it's gone on for too long, but that's that's me being <laughs> okay, bitter sure. about reading it for yeah. 150 or 120 <laughs> issues and saying. We're still doing this? Okay. But uh, I can discuss that in another episode where it'll just be Mike drinking beer and screaming into a microphone. So uh, (laughs) look for that. that Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess like to to round this off in a weird way, because I I realize we could probably go on about this for a really long time. Like, I know we've kind of like touched on different pieces, but like if we're thinking of other like other books right now if we if we had to think of one each i'm gonna i'm gonna put you guys on the spot and say we had to hammer on one book and say in 10 years people are gonna go that was an important book of this you know decade or whatever what book would you think it's going to be um i have one in mind and i know people are gonna roll their eyes when i say it go for it it's 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 obvious and they might not agree with me though but it's transformers versus gi joe by um uh, okay. Tom Scioli. What the fuck is that book? Little bias. <laughs> I think there's a little bit of bias there. Well, and I'll explain that bias. I'll explain why I think it's important because I think that it is a book that looks so different from the mainstream comic books of this era. I mean, mm-hmm. the big two, the the idea of there being a house style is kind of gone now, but their mainstream books kind of look <laughs> I don't know about a certain that, way. Paul. Well, I don't know yeah. if I agree with that. Okay, well, I mean, but in so some, there are in some ways there are remnants of this idea. There's a house style for the big two, and like modern mainstream superhero books have a certain look to them. And this book was doing similar stuff action wise and story wise, yet looking completely different. And there was a while ago where I was going back and rereading another. I might put it as a classic, uh, classic comic book by Howard Chaykin, his American Flag Run from oh, the eighties. Yeah. Oh yeah, which that book is so visually just overstimulating and just overwhelming, and there's so much going on the page. And I realized just how much of that Tom Silly was doing in Transformers versus GI Joes. And I think American Flag is a book that sort of recently kind of 
come into recognition as being a classic. And I think because Transformers vs. G.I. Joe's is a licensed book, it is a franchise that a lot of people maybe don't know about, don't care about. It maybe mm-hmm. didn't get a lot of attention, but as artists kind of look at it, I think a lot of people are going to say like, yeah, there's some pretty amazing next level stuff going on uh, narrative wise and art wise in that book. So Right. And I think that calls back to your to the point that we made earlier about a classic book isn't necessarily a well-loved book. And not to say right. that I don't yeah. think Transformers vs. G.I. Joe was not well-loved, but I think it's one of those books that flew way under the radar and only people who are paying attention into like the deep undergrounds of comics like we tend to be sometimes, or specifically creators do all the time. You'll hear them referencing weird, crazy shit from the 70s, 80s, and 90s that you would have never heard of. But they're like very, very important and influential works that eventually, you know, span and grow for reasons we don't, you don't see on the surface. But as soon as you dig into the comic, you go, wow, look at all the inspiration these comic book creators took from these old, weird books. And I, I, to your point, I think that you may be totally right with Transformers vs. G.I. Joe. Even even with the bias. Even with the bias. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that book really stands out as a very indie homemade feel injected into a a franchise book and if anything else it just really shatters that idea that um you you can't come on board like a corporate property and actually do some creative stuff with it Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and we've certainly seen in the last two or three years that you can you can have really creative really great great people come on board these pre-existing franchise books and and do something totally different with it and you know before that it was like are you doing ghost world are you doing you know some other daniel klaus book then if not you know it's not indie right so what about you nick What's your what's your thought? If you had to put your finger on something, Ooh. I know it's it's a lot of pressure, <laughs> it's, but it's, mine's going to be the biggest, tough. craziest one. So <laughs> okay. um, I'm excited to reveal. So you go ahead. You go okay. ahead next. I'll probably cheat and list one or two here, but if I had to, part of me really wants to say Lazarus. Um, okay. As as a just, if you want to look at a book that is so just intricately researched. And has so much thought going into it, and um, just world building is on on this like next level, and and the pacing is on this next level, and uh, maybe it stands out as a book that's almost just packaged and absolutely ready to be made into a TV show, and we can definitely say that there are books coming out in this era that are following suit. Um, if your name is Kirkman. Um, yeah, but there's I don't know. There's something about Lazarus in that regard that stands out to me that I think down the line um, could be viewed as such. As I said, I think there's some sort of unfair or weird bias that because it wasn't four issues and that was the end and we'll never see you know and we'd never see it again that because it's continued on it's going to be difficult to end up being a classic, um, especially because it's still going. Um, mm-hmm. Beyond that, another one I guess would be. Uh, I don't know. I've got a weird feeling about Department H, even especially because it has like a set end date that I think Department H could really go down as being, I mean, just a fantastic, fantastic book. Uh, just groundbreaking in terms of art, in terms of what he does with panels, in terms of what he does with flashback panels. Within, I mean, Kent is innovating in that book on so many different levels um, that I... 
Yeah. I, I, mean, I think that that book may be unique and maybe something that people study for a while, if only because mm-hmm. Kent put himself in a box and he said, I'm going to do a book in, what is it, 24 issues? 24 issues. And he said, I'm going to tell an entire murder mystery in 24 issues and I'm going to grow the world so fast in each issue, you will barely be able to keep track of it. And the fact that he's going to do it in 24 issues, fingers crossed that he doesn't change his mind, but if he does it in 24 issues, that will be an achievement in itself. To put, and I think to that's put an what end really date, could make it a classic. Yeah, put an, that's what's going to do exactly, it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, that, that book is impressive in its own right for that, in, in my opinion. But my, my classic pick, I think, is going to be Bitch Planet. If only because oh, like yeah. there's a ton of like <laughs> cultural things that are going into this book. But I think once we actually see... I know we're very early on in this book. I think only issue nine is out, and it's been running for almost two years. Like it's so slow going, and it's incredibly popular, uh, at least among the you know the circles I run in. And I think once we see all the final puzzle pieces laid out for this book, we're going to witness this massive picture of what Kelly Sue is trying to tell in this book. And we're not there yet, but I once if it gets some some momentum and it actually gets itself published and finished. I think this book is, I mean, and I say that with like a little bit of salt because (laughs) it's like books like this are frustrating because they're so powerful and they're so great. And yet their publishing schedule is is very tiered and weird and you'd never know the reason unless you follow closely with these creators. It's more image publishing schedule than most image books are. Yeah. So, (laughs) and so I really want this book to come out and I, I said this before on the show, I know, but uh, I it's it's unfortunate that I think it keeps losing a lot of momentum and it's going to mm. eventually become a sleeper book where people don't realize that it came out and they'll go, oh, there's another volume of this book and then they'll realize, oh, there's another two or three or four volumes of this book and in <laughs> five, ten years time, we're going to go, wow, look at what happened. Now, I'm, I'm placing a lot of you know, backing behind this book. I don't know how it's going to turn out, but I have enough faith in the creative team to say that I think what they're doing with this book is really powerful and once we see the like like i said the full picture we're going to really understand like the importance and like he- how heavy this actual storyline is and it's it's going to be well regarded in the future i mean i'm yeah. i'm totally confident in that <laughs> well the funny <laughs> thing about like a classic is that people who go and pick up that book 5 or 6 years from now um they're never going to pick it up or they they might not it depends if i'm lurking in the store they're not going to have someone standing next to them going you know we had to wait a year and a half for those four issues <laughs> right, so when you right, read those right. four <laughs> issues you think about all the shit we had to go through and it was really annoying they're not going to have any idea they're just going to be sitting in front of a book and they're going <laughs> to like it or not and and the idea that we were fed up with the publishing schedule is really not going to play any, into anything at all um so I mean, for for them, it's a non-factor. Yeah, right. On top yeah. of all the additional work that they could potentially compile into another book of its own, like a companion book of the mm-hmm. essays and the letters and all the stuff that came in the mm-hmm. back, like mm-hmm. of all the books that I read that have a lot of back matter stuff, I think Bitch Planet has some of the most interesting pieces. Like it's that and Brubaker's pulp stuff that he did all throughout the Fade Out. Um, some yeah. of the yeah. most interesting yeah. backstory, like essays that people wrote. Um, were fantastic to like add even more history and more understanding as to where the creators are coming from, what they're influenced by, and what the book is trying to do in telling its own story. Um, these supplemental works add so much value to the content that it would be a shame if these 
this content wasn't somehow published outside of the single issue books or if anything like go out and buy the digital issues because it's got all those that back matter stuff that may not be published Mm -hmm. in the trade so um yeah yeah that's i mean that's that's my pick i guess if if i had to put a finger down that i think that's a really good pick and especially for a book that's capturing a cultural and political zeitgeist really well and it's grabbing readers that don't normally read you know comics again it's another one of those books that's uh, actually hitting a, a bigger, broader audience, perhaps not quite in the same way that Saga is. But then again, what book is on the same level as Saga? Right. I don't even think Walking <laughs> Dead fans are picking up the the comic the same way that just Saga's reaching a broad, you know, audience. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you mentioned briefly um, Ed Brubaker. So here's my my question to you guys: Which Brubaker Which and Phillips one? joint mm-hmm. is going to be considered the classic? <laughs> Because uh, I could, I, I could make an argument for all of them. Thing. You know, yeah, I can make an argument for all of them. I think, I right now it's Kill or Be Killed because it's the one that's coming out right now. But uh, I mean, the Fade Out was pretty much a perfect comic book for those two creators. Yeah, honestly, what makes them special? I mean, personally, I think Sleeper probably one of their best work. Mm. But absolutely, um, yeah. really, I think the Criminal is probably going to be that book in ten of years' course. time. It's going to be a look at look at this historical comic book in a, in a weird way and it wasn't it's not necessarily based in, in any kind of fact but that right. to me is one of their best like Brubaker and Phillips like them together that's some of their best work that they've ever done um yeah, yeah I've, I've read as, as much of their other stuff as I can so of course yeah I think criminal is tough though because of the anthology nature of it yeah I don't know if I mean would you want to come forward and say all of criminal is is you know classic or would you have to pick and choose I don't know for me I, I'm I'm actually with Paul right now. Honestly, it's Kill or Be Killed. Um, Fatal kind of had petered out. Yeah, and, I agree. And the fade out, the ending was very like, this is the real world. Life sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to pat something on the back for being like. Oh, you know, this is realism. Thanks for not turning it into a Disney ending. Then, sure, the fade out gets points for that but otherwise you hit the ending and you're like whew I need I need to go watch something uplifting right about now <laughs> yeah, because yeah. this this just yeah. got too real this got too <laughs> real for me so yeah I'm 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 killer be killed right now I don't know why I think it's I think it's more I think it got them out of that I don't want to call it a rut I think rut is unfair but it was a real it was a period piece run for them for a while, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. And this is like, it's it's, you know, they don't hammer it chronologically into a very like definitive year or anything, but you can tell this is more modern, totally. Uh, and it's got that weird twist. Oh man, <laughs> yeah. You guys are you guys are just stuck in the hype. It's okay, you know whatever. That's true. It's okay, <laughs> book. <laughs> Can't see the forest okay. from the trees. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the I Read Comic Books podcast. This show is produced and hosted by me, Mike Rappin, with editing by Xander Riggs. Special thanks to Nick White and Paul Jaisley. The music in this episode is brought to you by the fantastic Infinity Shred. You can find Infinity Shred at infinityshred.com, as well as on Bandcamp at infinityshred.bandcamp.com. If you enjoy this show, tell someone about it. Rate us online. Write to us. Each person you tell about the show and each rating you give us lends a little more exposure to the show and helps us grow. It's also a great way for us to get feedback about the program we create each week for you. 
Another great way to give us feedback is to take a minute or two and fill out our listener survey at ircb.us survey. Besides answering some questions about the show, we also ask about what comics you're reading and which creators are currently your favorite. Or if you're just looking to say hi, you can email us at ircb at destroythesibe.org. And if you want to talk comics with us, find the I Read Comic Books group on Goodreads. We have a monthly book club, and we have a regular thread about what comics we've been reading. You can ask us questions and comment on each episode in our subreddit at ireadcomicbooks.reddit.com. The entire podcast team is on Twitter, and you can follow the show at IRCB Podcast. But a great way to experience the podcast, including our back-issue bin of episodes and our weekly pull list posting, is to visit us at our website, ircb.us. Until next time, from all of us at the podcast, thank you for listening. gonna go see dr strange at some point paul or yeah probably um i i my friend who saw it said it's worth the 3d experience so i just gotta find someone who's willing to pony up and go to see it in 3d so yeah i don't know quite what those go for (laughs) what those go for these days but uh, exactly yeah sure it's not as much as those d box ones but uh (laughs) yeah exactly I've never been to one of those. I hear it's, uh, I hear it's something. Uh, I I believe I believe my friend saw the most recent Fast and the Furious movie in the D box. <laughs> <laughs> He's never returned home. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Hasn't been the same since. <laughs> it shook him to his core. Yeah. Oh man. Well, I think the funniest thing is like for a movie like that, maybe it works, but like obviously they've adapted other less kinetic movies to that yeah. thing i want to say I, that I, when they when they did like there was a metallica like movie it was like a concert movie and i think you could get d-box tickets for that i'm like why would anyone ever watch that <laughs> it effectively simulates you being shoved <laughs> right yeah. i'm i'm really excited for the uh the dinner with andre d-box experience <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah, yeah. I think the tickets for those are like in like the low twenties. So yeah, that's sign, yeah. sign me up. No thanks. <laughs>